millions of people across the United States continue to be on edge after one of the darkest moments in recent history. On Wednesday, January 6th, a well-organized insurrection, including mobs of far-right Donald Trump supporters, stormed the U.S. Capitol buildings, the House and the Senate. Not only did they interrupt and delay the congressional counting of votes for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris in the Electoral College, they also attacked and beat Capitol Police and verbally abused elected officials. Indeed, uh, it is said that they had intention of harming elected officials. Five people died as a result of the insurrection and dozens were injured. In response, House Democrats are set to vote today, Wednesday, January 13th, to impeach Donald Trump, charging him with incitement of insurrection. Yesterday, on Tuesday, the House voted on a resolution urging Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Donald Trump. However, Pence formally rejected calls for him to invoke the 25th Amendment to initiate Trump's removal from office. Now, the political stakes are at an all-time high as we find ourselves less than a week from the scheduled transfer of power to President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Biden and Harris are scheduled to be inaugurated a week from today, Wednesday, January 20th, in Washington, D.C., indeed, on the steps of the Capitol. But many are concerned that Trump's racist far-right base will carry out more insurrections against the peaceful transfer of power. As we speak, the Secret Service say that they are taking command of security preparations at the U.S. Capitol and other federal buildings. They're backed by as many as 15,000 National Guard troops thousands of police and tactical officers, and layers of eight-foot steel fencing, this according to the Washington Post. This comes after the FBI warned of possible armed protests across the U.S. as Trump supporters and other far-right groups call for um, basically an insurrection. The agency also reported that armed groups are planning to gather at all 50 state capitals as well as in Washington, uh, D.C. Now, although Donald Trump is certainly on his way out, many are concerned that the racist and far-right movement he spawned isn't going anywhere. Among those who stormed the U.S. Capitol building was a white man carrying a Confederate flag a symbol of racism and hate. In the aftermath of the insurrection, several people of color have been physically and verbally attacked by Trump supporters. Racially motivated hate crimes are also on the rise against black people, Latino, and other communities of color. What lessons can we learn from the civil rights movement of the 20th century? Indeed, before we welcome our guest, we would like to go to a clip from the Guardian newspaper, um, basically about the pain and terror that black people have lived through in the United States with a specific focus on the Legacy Museum that uh, marks the thousands, the more than 4,300, some people say 6,000 lynchings that took place across the United States. Let's go to that clip now. 
American South, we don't talk about slavery, we don't talk about lynching, we don't talk about segregation. We've actually littered the landscape with the iconography of the Confederacy, which we romanticize, we honor. And I think that has left us uh, vulnerable to replicating those features of white supremacy that we've actually never repudiated. This is the uh, entrance of the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And we have this icon uh, to just talk about this uniquely American challenge of being a nation that's recovering from the legacy of slavery and also being the nation with the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Montgomery, a city shaped by slavery, because in fact that is the history of this community. It's almost overwhelming how many of these people are, are represented. That's, it's sobering. And I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm, I'm glad my family, maybe glad is not a word I should use. I'm grateful that our story ended differently because all of these people, their story is much more tragic. People in this country were acculturated, socialized into seeing black people mistreated, abused, brutalized, tortured. And that optic becomes key to how we can sociologically get comfortable with the phenomenon of lynching. I think for African-Americans who were forced to remain silent about this violence, that's what terrorism can do. It can, uh, you know, many people were lynched because they complained about a loved one being lynched, and it would get them lynched too. And it creates a kind of weight, a kind of burden. You know, the black people that fled this region by the millions in response to this terror didn't go to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit. As immigrants, they went there as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. Henry Smith, 17, is a very famous lynching in Paris, Texas in 1893 because 10,000 people showed up to watch this lynching. And we had several of these public spectacle lynchings. John Hartfield was lynched in Ellisville, Mississippi. They actually advertised the lynching in the newspaper. And this accommodation of violence and terror was something that was frequent, which is why you would sometimes have hundreds or thousands of people celebrating their ability to exercise this kind of control over black people. And whether you were the person cutting off the fingers and mutilating the bodies, or you were the person enjoying your deviled eggs and lemonade while this spectacle violence took place, something tragic is happening to you. People brought their children, they made their little kids watch human beings be burned or drowned or beaten. And um, I think that creates a kind of injury. And it has certainly created a disease where we've become indifferent to the victimization of black and brown people. And we have to treat that disease. Last month, when I got off work, there were two men in a black pickup with two huge Confederate flags flapping in the night following me home. They pulled over to the side and just looked at me. And I just looked at them. I guess it was an intimidation tactic, maybe. I pulled off and I hauled down that street and they were behind me. This is in Gaston, 2018. 
I have very good neighbors. I just wanted to make it to my street. Went on past, once I turned off onto my street, that was it. The African-American community has lived this pain and live with it even still. When black visitors leave this space, they're gonna go places where they're gonna be presumed dangerous and guilty and have to navigate that. Uh, you know, even when they get their coffee at a Starbucks, uh, recent events tell us you can be, you can be targeted. And so I think for people of color who have to live with this reality, experiencing it for a moment uh, should be something we're all willing to do. All righty, there you go. I would now, I'm really um, honored to welcome our guest, Dr. Bernard Lafayette. Uh, junior. Uh, he was a student activist in the Nashville, Tennessee sit-in campaign of 1960, a longtime staff member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee. Uh, also, he worked uh, closely with uh, John Lewis and indeed throughout 1958 and 1959 in partnership with Nashville's SCLC affiliate, uh, Jim Lawson taught nonviolence techniques to Bernard Lafayette and his fellow Nashville students, including uh, John Lewis, James Bevel, and Diane Nash. Uh, now, prior to the Supreme Court's 1960 ruling in Boynton versus Virginia, declaring segregation in interstate, interstate travel facilities unconstitutional, Bernard Lafayette and John Lewis integrated an interstate bus on their way home from seminary by sitting at the front and refusing to move. And of course, Lafayette's group was attacked by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he met, uh, Dr. King uh, met with them and then negotiated on their behalf with the White House and the Department of Justice to ensure their protection in Montgomery and a military ex escort on their continued journey to Mississippi. Uh, Bernard Lafayette, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty. So I, I wonder, let's start with your reaction to the image of the Confederate flag being paraded around uh, the Capitol buildings on January the 6th. Well, the Confederate uh, flag represents uh, you know, a group of people who feel that they have lost power and they're very much concerned. Uh, one of the things I think is very important is to study the history so that the future would not be a mystery. For example, the original Ku Klux Klan was not a racist organization. The original Klan was organized to make sure that white fathers took care of their children. So they, if they did not take care of their children, then that means the other white people, men, would have to take care of their children. So they wanted people to be responsible. And that's what the original, okay, Klan was about. Now, they had a split and a difference among themselves when, uh, you know, the uh, change took place and you had blacks who were elected to office, political office, and that's when the, uh, the split took place 
and the uh, ones who split decided they were going to go after getting rid of these uh, black elected officials. That was the uh, motivation, you know, for them to do that. And the main reason is because they felt that they were losing power. Whether people are losing power or not, if they feel like they're losing power, then they take action. And this pattern has been uh, consistent throughout the world, other countries. So that's when we had the Confederacy and that sort of thing, etc. Yes. And this is why it's, it's not uh, only important for people to understand what people do and their behavior. It's important to understand why they behave such a way. What motivates them to do that? And when people uh, act in a violent way, it's based on fear, okay? Not courage, fear. So what is it people are afraid of? People are afraid that when you have a legislature, like the one we have now, that they're going to lose their opportunity to carry their weapons where they want to. That's one of the problems, is that fear. And there's going to be fear, the whole idea of people having uh, job opportunities or educational opportunities. They're going to fear uh, the resources that people uh, have now in terms of from the government, and they would lose. Now, these fears are not grounded, in fact, because all people are going to benefit from the change that we're talking about, and particularly poor people. And that's whether they're... Uh, black, or whether they're Hispanic, or whether they're Asian, or whether they're white. Poor people are going to benefit from this government that we have elected now, and we can make sure that that happens. So uh, what is it that caused people to do that? I think the media can play a role here in helping people have more dialogue among themselves so that they can be able to fully understand what the change is all about. Because the people who carry the Confederate flag and all that sort of thing, et cetera, they want to go back to a period of history where they felt they had power. So therefore, what they're complaining about is the fact that they feel like they're losing power, which is not the case. So there needs to be more dialogue, there needs to be more, more conversations, about the issues that they are concerned about. Because that's how we brought about change, when we began to talk about the issues that concerned us. But we did not exclude, okay, white people who had uh, poverty conditions as well, like the Poor People's Campaign. Those were all people of different groups and different colors, different nationalities, different ethnic groups. It must be inclusive. So I think that there is a grave misunderstanding on the part of those people who are behaving the way they did at the white, at the Capitol. There's a grave misunderstanding, and we need to find a way 
that we can have more dialogue and more interaction among each other to understand that what's going to benefit all of us. We are one nation. In fact, we have helped other countries and other nations come to this point. It's in our Constitution. It's in all of our laws and behavior. So I think that um, it's a matter of a lack of information on the part of large numbers of people. And well, I think let, we let pull together this. that um, leadership and you must be able to have clarity. Right. Let me ask you this, Dr. Uh, Bernard Lafayette. Um, going back in time a little bit, there's a lot of concern right now on the part of people of color. We're going to have a guest on after you, a young black man who was beaten in Los Angeles, on the street of Los Angeles, by some uh, white Trump supporters. Is a, a deep racist thread that runs through a lot of this. Now, your time of, of activism, of course, you continue to be active, active, but just in the early days of the civil rights period, the civil rights era, tell us a little bit about how, what you all did to survive the kind of racist terror that you were facing. I mean, you know people, uh, colleagues of yours who were killed uh, just for the civil rights work they were doing. Uh, Bernard Lafayette. Yes. I have friends who have suffered not only beatings, but people have been killed. The same night that Medgar Evers was killed, there was a three-state conspiracy to kill three of us in different places. Ben Elton Cox, who was a core uh, organizer, Congress of Racial Equality in Louisiana, Medgar Evers in Mississippi, and I was in Selma, Alabama, and they had a conspiracy, and the FBI told me this. It's in my book, In Peace and Freedom, A Journey in Selma. We suffered greatly, and I lost a lot of friends, not only those who were beaten up and that sort of thing, et cetera. There were those who were killed, like Medgar Evers, and... Martin Luther King, I was with him that morning when he was killed later. I'd been with him at the Lorraine Hotel because I was on the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he sent me to Washington, D.C. to do a press conference to open up the campaign. The last thing he told me is that he said, Bernard, the next thing we're going to do, he called me Lafayette, that we're going to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. So we have to talk about not just the problem, we have to talk about solutions. And what people have to learn is how to... uh, respond to those things that they fear. And in nonviolence, we teach people how to uh, fight for their rights, but in a way that does not destroy other people, but help to lift them up and help them understand that we are all one people. 
and we've got to be together as sisters and brothers. And and Martin the King always let people know that we are brothers and sisters, and we have to understand how to support each other. And I know that the, we as blacks, and I can name a lot of others who were killed in the movement and beaten in the movement. You know, we went through it. Um, but you got to have leadership. That's the key thing. Leadership that's going to be concerned about all people. Because unless we do that, we're going to have this uh, division among us. And well, there are some divisions this, among so, people of color. Right. So we can overcome that. That's the main thing. I, I know you, you only have a, a few minutes uh, more with us, but how did you, given the racist terror, and you know my cousin Martha Prescott, who has told me stories about being holed up in a church surrounded by armed racists from the, from the Klan with weapons, you all faced that kind of terror day in and day out. You knew, as you just said, friends of yours were beaten, people were killed. What kept you going? How did you keep it together? And this is important, I think, for, for people to hear right now, because we are worried and facing um, really what a lot of people describe as modern-day lynchings and a kind of a racist terror against us. How, how did you get through it? Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette. The way we got through the uh, terror and the racist uh, behavior and that sort of thing was, number one, understand where it's coming from, why people behave that way. The next thing is do not uh, understand the purpose of that particular action is to cause you to have fear and not to even seek to bring about change. So that right. in addition to understanding, you also have to have courageous uh, response to that kind of behavior because the purpose of it is to cause you to stop what you're doing. And what you're doing is right. And you do not allow a force of violence to stop you. I'm proud of that uh, uh, legislation we have because they are continuing in spite of all of that. And and I know it's, it's to even imagine someone would attack the capital of the United States of America, but you got to understand why. And frankly, I'm still doing my study on why this happened, how it happened, and what was the expectation as a result of this happening? Now, that's the thing you got to study. What do they expect to happen as a result of that attack? Then you got to make sure, uh, to answer your question, that you have the courage to stand up, okay, and not allow them to achieve that purpose. Right. Uh, okay, well... Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, we hope to uh, call on you again. Um, we are, I know you have to dash. We are going to have to leave it there. Um, Dr. Lafayette has served as the Director of Peace and Justice in Latin America, the Chairperson of the Consortium on Peace Research, Education, and Develop, 
meant he is an ordained minister, um, earning his bachelor's from American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee, and his uh, EDD from Harvard University, and he served on the faculties of Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta and Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was dean of the graduate school. He was also principal of Tuskegee Institute High School in Tuskegee, Alabama, and a teaching fellow at Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, thank you so very much. We know uh, there are a lot of calls on your time. Uh, so we appreciate you spending this time with you, and we hope to continue our conversation at another time. Thank you so very much, and please stay safe and well. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the work that you're doing to make this happen. Thank you.